It is such a pleasure to be back at Hope Unitarian Church. Last year I was here and you were in the midst of a search. It is good to see you settled and thriving. So thank you for inviting me. Uh, A funny prologue to my sermon this morning. Um, So I am an inveterate, last-minute editor of things that I write. And so as is my way of doing things... uh, this morning, of course, I was busily editing my sermon because the deadline was not there yet. And <laughs> After 46 years, I've realized this is how I function in the world. It's better to accept that. So I went to print it and got this funny operator error message. And I, I did what I always do in that situation, which is to call my engineer husband to say, hey, this won't print. So he came out to take a look at it as I got dressed. And as I came downstairs, I noticed my 10-year-old slinking guiltily in the background I said, Annalise, what do you know about this? And she said, yeah, we got that message last week. I'm like, what did you do? And she said, I turned it off. (laughs) Uh, Needless to say, um, my printer was not functioning, and I thought, I have to preach in an hour with an unfunctioning printer. Now, the, the irony here, of course, is that Kathy asked me to talk about my experiences with college students and the millennial generation. And so I thought, what would a millennial do? And so I said, a millennial would email this sermon to her smartphone and then read it from that. And my husband said, so you're going to spend the time nearsightedly squinting at it and losing your place? And I said, no, a millennial would email it to your work iPad and pray that it works. So welcome to my first sermon preached from an iPad. It could go either way. It could be very millennial-esque or it could be a technological debacle because... I still like a printed hard copy. So here we go. Bear with me, please. As was mentioned, from 2002 until last month, I served as a campus minister at United Campus Ministry at the University of Tulsa, uh, an ecumenical and interfaith campus ministry dedicated to peace and justice. Better known on campus as the Little Blue House, UCM is a campus meeting space for student groups dedicated to feminism and gender equality. Uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer issues, environmentalism, human rights, progressive religion, and social justice issues such as fair trade, micro-lending, and anti-racism. Founded in 1967 as the Canterbury Center for United Ministry, it continues to be supported by an ecumenical group of progressive Tulsa churches, including Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Disciples of Christ, United Church of Christ, and Unitarian Universalists. Our students come from a variety of religious traditions and no religious traditions. As a group that is non-dogmatic and non-creedal, it has been the goal of UCM to welcome its members wherever they happen to be on their life journey, to provide space for seeking, questions, support, and community. While we support the religious freedom on campus that allows people to practice their faith as they are called to do so, we are careful to ensure that there is no bait and switch at the Little Blue House. When you are invited into veggie lunch, you aren't then subjected to a speaker who asks you if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You are simply invited because there is always a place at the table, and the circle can always be enlarged to include one more. It was a challenging decade to be a campus minister in largely mainline Protestant campus ministry. When I went to my first gathering of campus ministers at the yearly National Campus Ministry Association Conference at the beginning of my tenure 12 years ago, there were over 100 campus ministers there. Two years ago, at the same conference, there were 26 campus ministers. It is a bittersweet event to attend. 
On one hand, it is incredible, it's incredibly wonderful to be with colleagues who know intimately the joys and challenges of campus ministry work. On the other hand, it was exceptionally depressing each year to return to learn which campus ministries had had to close their doors in the intervening year. More than half of the campus ministries, like the Little Blue House, that were in existence when I began in 2002, have closed in the intervening 12 years. By all accounts, UCM at TU should have been one of those statistics. When I started in 2002, 90% of our funding came from churches and denominations, and 10% came from individuals. By 2013, that had completely reversed. Last year, 10% of our support came from churches and denominations, and 90% came from individuals. The reason we survived when many others didn't was that we are small and we are scrappy. Our entire budget is $35,000 per year, and we have a small, admittedly ramshackle house that functions as our building that doesn't have the infrastructure costs of some of the largest campus ministry buildings that have been built over the years. We have also been extremely blessed by individual donors who believed in our mission and supported us through these dramatic changes. These changes, of course, didn't happen in a vacuum, but are part of the larger issues facing mainline Protestant denominations. When explaining the dramatic funding cuts to campus ministry, denominational officials have asserted they want to focus more on strengthening denominational and sectarian ministries in an attempt to stem the tide of decline of mainline denominations and de-emphasizing the ecumenical and multi-faith ministries such as ours. While I understand the practical aspects of this and the harsh financial realities that would lead to this type of perspective, the irony is that this, that this priority is the exact opposite of where the young people that I interact with daily seem to be heading on their spiritual journeys. Denominational affiliation means very little to them. They are far more interested in collaborative work across boundaries than they are in maintaining traditions that don't have meaning for them. The denominational differences that distinguish Lutherans from Methodists, from Presbyterians, from Episcopalians, from Disciples from Congregationalists, etc., etc., are lost on most millennials, perhaps rightfully so. As we know from our membership rosters, they are largely not joining religious organizations. They are also not joining political parties, civic groups, or social organizations. But from this, we should not extrapolate that they aren't engaged. It was an unbelievable gift to work with college students every day for the past 12 years. It was also an unbelievable challenge at times. I had very little gray hair when I began this job in 2002. And well, as my daughter notes regularly, the silver sparkle fairy stripes in my hair, the phrase she coined, which I think is much better than gray, seemed to grow wider by the month. But we'll focus on the gift that is college students rather than the challenge this morning. Let me begin by saying that I deeply disagree with the characterization of millennials that describe them as narcissistic, self-important, and disengaged. Yes, they interact in ways that are deeply different than the ways in which my generation, Generation X, and those that came before me do. But then, then again, the world in which they have come of age is significantly different as well. Let's look at my own life. When I began this job in 2002, I did not own a cell phone. I had a 1994 Dell laptop computer, which weighed about 20 pounds. 
It had AOL dial-up as my internet connection, for which I paid $14.95 per month. On a funny note, my 10-year-old still hauls that around whenever she wants to play offices it and refers to it as her typewriter. There was no social media. There may have been texting, but I had never done it. Much has changed in the last 12 years. One of the best tools I access each fall when the academic year would begin is the Beloit College Mindset List. Each August since 1998, Beloit College has released the Mindset List, providing a look at the cultural touchstones that shaped the lives of students entering college that year. The creation of Beloit's former public affairs director, Ron Neef, and humanities professor, Tom McBride, it was originally created as a reminder to faculty to be aware of dated references and quickly became a catalog of the rapidly changing worldview of each new generation. Mindset List websites at Beloit College and their Facebook page receive more than a million hits annually. It's a fascinating list, and I encourage you to look at it, but fair warning, it will make you feel ancient. So to give you an example from the Beloit Mindset List, here is a sampling of the list for the college students who will graduate this coming year in 2015. For the class of 2015, Dr. Seuss, Freddie Mercury, Sam Walton, and Jim Henson have always been dead. There has not been a Berlin Wall or the KGB. Ferris Bueller could be their father. They've likely never dialed a rotary phone or used a phone with a cord attached to it. Most have never worn a wristwatch. The Dilly Septuplets are their classmates. Maps of the human genome have always existed. Czechoslovakia has never existed. Russians and Americans have always been living together in space. Ruth Bader Ginsburg has always been on the Supreme Court. They have no idea that the big three referred to CBS, NBC, and ABC News networks. Salsa has always outsold ketchup in the United States. They have never known public school without high-stakes educational testing. The list goes on. Alarming, yes? More sobering facts about the millennial generation? Collectively, they have over a trillion dollars in college loan debt. Just six in ten millennials have jobs. Half of those are part-time. 284,000 American college graduates were working for minimum wage jobs in 2012. 48% of college, employed college graduates work in jobs that do not require four-year degrees. More than 50% do not believe that Social Security will exist when they reach their retirement age. Close to 50... Did I say something about technology? Close to 50% had to move back home at some point after college due to financial constraints. They are the first generation since the Great Depression who are not doing better than their parents financially at the same age. Interestingly, 81% of them say that giving to causes in which they believe is a high priority, and they have done so. 84% say that helping to make a positive difference in the world is more important than professional recognition. And more than 65% of them say they would choose lower salary jobs in fields in which they can make a difference over higher paying jobs in which they don't find the work as meaningful. Working as I did with this generation, my learning curve always seemed steep. This generation has had an upbringing unlike any in history, given that they have come of age during our great digital revolution. 
As a somewhat reluctant participant in the great digital revolution, I'm always a number of steps behind them. At best, I hoped they would find this trait of mine eclectic or slightly charming, but at worst, I'm sure they found it exasperating when I couldn't figure out how to email a PowerPoint slide to digital signage at TU. Regardless, technology functions as an integral and integrated part of their lives in ways that it doesn't in mine, despite my best efforts. Last spring, a group of us were sitting at a table following our weekly veggie lunch, and I was complaining about yet another change made to Facebook. One of the students who had my phone at that exact moment and was attempting to install updates for me because I couldn't do it, (laughs) looked up at me and said, you know, for someone whose professional life hinges on working for social change and for changing unjust systems and practices, you don't seem to like change very much. (laughs) (laughs) Silence ensued. (laughs) Ah, the gift of epiphany moments at the hands of college students. I have thought of this conversation every day since it occurred. On some level, I'm sure I've had moments of awareness of my ambivalence to change, but I had never thought of it intentionally or systematically. It was jarring to realize that I could have gone so long without recognizing this fundamental disconnect in my thinking and feeling and work. It turns out that I am a change agent who is, at times, distinctly uncomfortable with change. I'm not sure how I went so many years without discovering that there are established theories of change, but they exist and they're fascinating. Looking back, I suppose I thought that I understood how change works intuitively and thus really didn't need a formalized study of it. And so consciously and unconsciously, I bought into a great deal of the mythology about social change, which actually served to undermine the change I sought. I wish I could say that I have discovered some hard and fast truths, that my life has been completely transformed but it turns out change does not work that way. I've begun a process, though, that looks at it all much more intentionally. Recent theories of change have focused on the process of change as just that, a process. Change is not a single event. It does not occur overnight, but rather it occurs through defined stages. In the first stage, no one is content with the status quo. It might not feel like it, but this is a positive place to be because denial is gone and there is an acknowledgement that there is a problem or need to be addressed. The second stage of change, contemplation, is defined by the experience of ambivalence. One is being pulled in two opposite directions, the wish to change in tension with the fear or discomfort or inconvenience of actually changing. I want to be healthier, but I really don't like to exercise. I'd like to pay down debt, but I don't want to stop spending. Fear about change can take many forms. Some people fear the prospect of trying and failing. Some fear the prospect of doing something new. And some fear that the changes they make won't be accepted or supported by friends and family members. Desire alone is generally not enough to affect change. And the very real fears about change cause many to become stuck in ambivalence, never making the decision to change. All of this felt familiar and identifiable to me, but there was more to it. I have often compared social change movements of the past with current efforts at change and found current efforts to be lacking. Why could they accomplish so much in the past when it seems that everything is so slow and so painful now? Were social, agent, were social change agents of the past stronger or more resilient? Were they made of sterner stuff? Were they more effective leaders and organizers with more vision who were less easily discouraged? Of course, the reality is is that social change has always been slow and painful. 
but the sanitized and edited and condensed histories we've been taught would have us believe otherwise. An excellent example of this myth of easy change in history has been swirling around in the wake of the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington and the story of Rosa Parks. You know Rosa Parks, that poor, tired seamstress who was too tired to give up her seat on the bus and in so doing unintentionally sparked the civil rights movement. Unfortunately, this story, the one we teach our kids, the one we repeat to one another when we speak about social justice and activism, is so stripped of its context that it bears little resemblance to actual historical events that occurred all those years ago. This is a shame, because the real story is quite a bit more inspiring and powerful. In the real history, Rosa Parks was far from a poor old seamstress. In fact, Parks was a vibrant, strong woman who had long been an important community leader in the fight for racial justice. Parks had been one of the first women in Montgomery to join the NAACP and had been its secretary for many years, working under Chapter President Edie Nixon, a major union leader from whom she learned about the labor movement. Rosa Parks was well known to local African-American leaders for her moral strength and her work fighting to desegregate Montgomery schools and was well-versed in former challenges to segregation, such as a bus boycott in in Baton Rouge two years earlier that had won limited gains and the previous arrests of Claudette Colvin and other residents of Montgomery who had refused to move to the back of the bus. Rosa Parks was far from the first African-American to be arrested on a bus. Rosa Parks knew exactly what she was doing. The mythologized version of the story also has Parks acting in isolation. As it's told, Parks' act of defiance spontaneously led to community-wide solidarity around an instantly effective bus boycott the day after Parks was arrested. Of course, social change doesn't happen that way, and it's an affront to the intelligence, determination, and skill of the civil rights community in Montgomery to turn their organized and planned resistance into an unprompted emotional response. In reality, African-American leaders had long considered a bus boycott as a tactic to achieve racial justice. They had been laying the organizing groundwork for years and had simply been waiting for the right person, someone like Parks, who was a trusted community leader, to serve as its spark. That's why organizers were able to mobilize the boycott so quickly. The evening of Parks' arrest, Edie Nixon, attorney Fred Gray, who had earlier defended Claudette Colvin, and his colleagues agreed that this was the opportunity they had been waiting for, and decided to try to take the case to the Supreme Court. That night, they contacted Joanne Robinson, president of the highly active 300-member Women's Political Club, stayed up till dawn with a mimeograph machine making thousands of flyers that were distributed over the weekend to churches, schools, stores, and homes. And the next morning, Nixon phoned up Montgomery's black ministers, including the young Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., and told them it was time to mobilize the city's many African-American congregations. And that, of course, was just the beginning. We tend to think of the boycott as being instantaneously effective, but in reality, it went on for 381 inconvenient days. That is over a year in which thousands of African-Americans chose to walk, often many miles, to and from work every day. For all that time, organizers had two mass rallies every week to raise spirits and money and arranged countless carpools to provide thousands of rides each day. Rosa Parks and her husband lost their jobs, their lives were threatened. There was great personal cost, fear, and discomfort. In the end, the Montgomery bus boycott was successful and it played an important role in the the inspiring subsequent acts of organized defiance and courage in the civil rights movement. 
And that is truly a powerful story. But the lessons we learn from the real Rosa Parks history are very different from those that we learn from the Rosa Parks myth. And many would argue that this is not an accident. It's much safer from the perspective of the status quo to teach our kids that social change comes from isolated individual action, from heroes like Rosa Parks who come along every once in a while and end desegregation in a day. Because when people think that, they never get around to the kind of deliberate collective action and organizing that actually led to the Montgomery bus boycott and that is always necessary to create lasting change. Jim Crow was overcome because ordinary people banded together at significant personal sacrifice to fight against oppression. It did not happen spontaneously. It did not happen by chance. It was arrived at only through the hard work and perseverance and commitment to this common struggle. For me, this has been a challenge in working with millennials. Despite the fact that technologically speaking, the world has changed faster than it ever has in the past decade, that doesn't necessarily translate into lasting social change. And I think we have a generational disconnect. A rapidly changing technological culture doesn't necessarily translate into a world that is more equitable or just. I believe that work might still have to happen through the harder, more time-consuming paths of creating communities and building networks. It was fascinating to watch my students as they were glued to their Twitter accounts during the Arab Spring. They were watching history unfold. Unjust governments were toppling. A new day was dawning, and they saw it happen live. It has also been interesting to watch their mystification as to why the promise of the Arab Spring has yet to be realized. I myself don't have an answer to that, but would hypothesize that a part of it is that the information-sharing technology that aids in the tearing down of something is not quite as developed yet when it comes to the building up of something new. That doesn't make social media bad. It just means that as powerful as it can sometimes be, it is still just one tool out of many necessary to create change. As someone who waited until her late 30s to have a child, I now find myself very much a part of the sandwich generation. That generation who must care for the needs of a child while simultaneously caring for elderly parents who are increasingly in need of my help. As this role emerged, it occurred to me that there were a lot of parallels in my professional life. I now sometimes refer to myself as the sandwich generation of ministers. As someone who professionally wants to serve the needs of older generations of church members who have worked and sacrificed to maintain the religious traditions in which I have found support in meeting, while simultaneously serving the very different needs of college students who have many of the same needs for support and community, but who envision that taking place in new and different settings than traditional churches. I often find myself trying to translate the norms of these different constituencies whose methods might be very different, but whose goals generally are not. And I think we make a terrible mistake when the discussion insists on an either-or model. Rather, we need a both-and model. Discussions of either technology or community are not helpful. They are mutually exclusive, and there is no going back. Demonizing an older generation as resistant to change is not helpful. Demonizing a younger generation as technologically dependent is unfair and unhelpful, too. This generation is simply creating their reality on the canvas they have been given. 
There was room and necessity for both the painstaking, years-in-the-making, March on Washington civil rights movement model and the live Twitter feed awareness-building movement of hashtag bring back our girls. Social change, exhausting, messy, long-delayed, uncelebrated, unsettling, celebrated, justice-oriented change is happening, but it is happening as change happens, imperfectly, after long struggle and cost, with fear and doubt, with courage and conviction, messily, and with planning and organizing. In this particular season of change, and truthfully, which season isn't a season of change, of personal challenges, of community change and visioning, of international change and fears and challenge and opportunity, it is important to gather as a community, whether that is in this sanctuary or on a 124 comment thread on Facebook, to be reminded of our strength together, to revisit our vision and to hold each other accountable. It's everything that follows, the debate, the ambivalence, the fear, the decisions, and the actions that will determine our process and outcomes. The answers can never be either or. They have to be both and. May we work together to make it so.